everyone welcome back to another episode of don't be so dramatic my name is rachel and this is the podcast where i talk to different people in the entertainment industry to discover what their job involves and how they got there before we jump into this week's episode is anyone else absolutely freezing right now i'm sat here recording this intro and made myself a cup of tea just so I could hold it in my hand because I'm a little icicle right now. Where did this weather come from? I'm like tracky pantsing every single day of the week now because normal pants are just not warm enough. Um, so that's my life. Anyways, <laughs> for this week's episode, I had with me Belvoir Street Theatre's artistic director, Eamon Flack. Now, I really wanted to know how one becomes an artistic director and what journey um, Eamon went on in order to become an artistic director. And I feel like it's very much intertwined with him discovering who he is as a person, you know, slowly but surely throughout his life. Um, and, you know, one thing that always interests me in anyone's story is the fact that he, it didn't all happen for him in his 20s. You know, I think it's such an idea in our industry that everything has to happen for you when you're young and whatnot. Not the case with Eamon, which is amazing. I love it. Love it. I also really liked that we talked about some productions that he was willing to say didn't work that he directed and productions that he probably wouldn't do again, you know, and he talks about the the problematic things within them, which is, you know, I just, I feel like we always talk about the amazing moments in our careers or the things that were a turning point in a positive way for us, but it was very interesting to hear someone talk about how they knew that the the production that they had put on in the past wasn't the best and that's okay life goes on he's still the artistic director of Belvoir now that didn't stop him so and we also talked about obviously with COVID-19 um, how that's affecting actors that's something that Eamon is quite passionate about which I love I love having passionate people at the forefront defending and working for our industry at this time it's important to have people like that and also one more thing before we jump into the episode I just I really wanted to say a huge 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 thank you to every one of my listeners thank you so much for supporting the podcast listening to my podcast is supporting me reaching out to me and saying that you liked a specific episode is supporting me in the most amazing way I like I love getting messages it absolutely just melts my heart thank you thank you thank you so much I'm so appreciative um, of you guys it really means a lot to me so I think this is a time um, that we should be appreciative of the things in our lives so I just wanted to share my appreciation okay so (laughs) without further ado let's jump in Hi, Eamon. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm very lucky to have some of your time at this period in time. My pleasure, Rachel. Um, So you are the artistic director at Belvoir Street Theatre. I wanted to first start off by asking you, um, so I know that you went to WAPA. Where did your kind of interest in the industry as a whole first start out? Um. I didn't grow up going to the theatre. Um, uh, I, I grew up in a Catholic household that, that um, didn't trust the theatre at all. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when I was at uni, when I was about 19 or 20, um, I'd, been, I'd been doing a unit about the decadence of Oscar Wilde and the late 19th century and... And I saw an ad when I was I was working at David Jones and I was, my job was to sit at the security door and make sure people weren't stealing things. And I saw in the newspaper an ad for a play about Oscar Wilde and I, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I borrowed a friend's credit card, my friend who was doing engineering. She had a credit card. I was an art student, so I didn't have a credit card. Mm-hmm. And she um, I borrowed this card and booked a ticket and it was a, um, it was a revelation going to see a piece of theatre and, I, at that point, was living a very um, um, compartmentalised, um, closeted, um, maybe even closeted to myself, really, life. And I saw this performance of Billy Brown's as Oscar Wilde at, at, um, in Brisbane up at QPAC. It was um, uh, a revelation. And I remember it being very clear to me, walking across the bridge that night to walk up to Central Station, catch the train back to Wooloo, and that... Um, I remember thinking that thought very clearly to myself, you can do these things together and how splendid that must be. And um, it planted a seed. It took me a a good couple of years to then summon up the uh, courage to do anything about that. Um, But it was, it was sort of that instant in a way, um, I think um, that first experience of it. And that was Neil Armfield's production of the Judas kiss, which was, um, a huge hit was first at Belvoir in the late nineties. And then, and then Robin Nevin, when she was the artistic director of Queensland theater, I think brought it up and I don't remember. It was 99 or 2000, I think probably mm. 99, maybe 98. Mm. Um, yeah. And then uh, weirdly enough, I, I met Billy Brown who a lot of people don't know now, but he was one of our um, great, great theater stage animals in this country. And, um, and I met Billy because he was an adjunct professor one semester at the University of Queensland where I was studying. And um, I very, very shyly introduced myself to him. I could barely speak. And he said, do you act? Do you in theatre? I said, no, no, no. But I, at that point, I, w- I used to go on Sunday nights with a friend of mine and sing bits from musicals. <laughs> He'd play the piano. <laughs> oh. And we had recorded me singing this song. Um, anyway, and Billy was like, well, you know, why are you at these lectures? And I said, well, I sing a bit and I saw you in this play. And and he said, well, you got something, you know, like, and I said, well, I have a tape of me singing. And anyway, I I gave him this tape and he um, emailed me through the university and said, you should go to drama school. And um, interesting. uh, And that was what it, and that was what it took for me to find the um, courage, I think, to, um, to audition. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that, you know, growing up, was there ever kind of an inkling for you that you felt like you were a creative person or were you just um, kind of really trying to figure out your life in terms of, because, you know, I, I was raised Christian as well. So I understand, you know, being raised in a religious setting can be constricting in some form or another or or another um so sometimes you really are not aware of yourself or what is going on because you're trying to live by these rules so did you ever kind of feel creative or i don't know if i would call it creative i had always been very acutely aware of feeling like very a very like a very peculiar person like it's one of my kind of earliest you know like you when you first kind of develop a sense of self, 
the you, I think, well, I certainly remember it. And I remember thinking, uh, like, I remember feeling um, like an odd one out in some way. And um, that feeling never went away. And it's never gone away. Like, I still feel it. Um, and I think that's probably the source of something that maybe gets called creativity. But I never, yeah. I never saw it as creativity. I certainly, I certainly was... Um, like in spite of my that upbringing, that Catholic upbringing, there was a lot of art in the house. It was like there was always like I was woken every morning by classical classic FM blaring through Mum's stereo, which was you know infuriating. <laughs> and then you know, like we you know, Mum loved art. She loved you know, we'd go to the art gallery. Um, she loved the symphony. And like she took I don't know if she ever did take me to the symphony actually, but she took me to the opera once and. So it, it was not that it was quashed, but but more that this feeling of peculiarity felt like it had to be kept secret. Mm. But then it also was irrepressible. And the the two sides of that, I think, um, I don't know. Like I think most people who are working in the arts have some kind of little I don't know thing, some little sort of like um, bit of grit or you know some sort of flaw that that they kind of that becomes them. <laughs> that you grow into or something. And that's definitely what that feeling is. Um, but, you know, I loved to read. I loved, uh, I wanted to be a writer for a very long time. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. And we all, we all, mum made us all learn musical instruments as well because she didn't get to. So she sort of insisted we all learned an instrument. Um, and once in, once in the car when I was about six or seven, I said, oh, that's nice. It was a piece of violin. The next thing I was learning violin. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then you learnt <laughs> from that. Yeah, which is an excruciating and difficult instrument, especially if you're not wildly passionate about it. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like learning an instrument for many, many years, you do, you learn discipline. Yeah. You do, yeah, yeah. And you, do, you sort of learn, you learn the hard one satisfaction of banging away at something until you get a bit good at a bit of it. And you learn sort of determination or something, I think. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. But no, I mean, I left uni and started a science degree. So I don't know that I ever saw a, uh, a life in the arts as any more viable than I think the other fantasies that I held as a child, which would, you know, be an astronaut or, um, you know, be a botanist in the 19th century. Like, you know, <laughs> they, they were all they were all equally impossible. Um, and then suddenly one of them was not, was not impossible because, you know, there was Billy Brown doing this thing. So. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting then that early on you kind of weren't specifically interested in theatre, and now you've directed so many plays. <laughs> it's interesting how that that interest kind of, uh, I guess, grew in you um, throughout. I guess exploring who you were as a person as well during your twenties. Certainly, the that. The revelation of watching Billy and knowing that you didn't have to kind of live a lie, I guess, and knowing that you could, um, you know, put yourself together uh, always meant that the drive to act was very, very deep, very, you know what I mean, like really deep and really strong. And um, and certainly going to drama school did mean that I was kind of almost instantly um, like, uh, you know, I passed my housemate at the end of the first week. Like it was instant. I was like, oh, I see. Here we go. Now I get it. Oh, yeah. That's the <laughs> that's drama what it is to, school experience. That's what passing a boy is like. <laughs> I know. It was such a cliche. Um, you know, so it was kind of like, um, it was, um, uh, you know, emancipatory. It was, you know, it, it did feel like I was kind of untrapped in some way. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and it was also a struggle, which I don't mind. I, I think people who want life not to be a struggle is kind of ridiculous. I think that um, you, you should struggle. Um, uh, but I, I also, during those years at drama school, um, it was clear to me, I think, and to my teachers pretty quickly that I, um, like I was not a bad actor actually, I think in many ways, but I also, it was also clear that I kept wanting to step off to one side quite a lot and that I had an instinct to do that, to kind of like look at it um, from the outside, which okay. is really, I think in many ways, the instinct, um, you know, of a director. Um, and that was always there from really early on and uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a plan. But... Do any of us really have a plan? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, you've, got to, you've got to have half a plan and you've also got to be really ready to abandon it very quickly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when a bigger plan or a better plan presents itself. Oh, 100%. You have to be so adaptable in this industry because you just don't know what avenues are going to present themselves and then where they're going to take you. Yeah, or where an idea is going to come from or where a collaboration is going to arise or, you know, you suddenly kind of like go, oh, fuck, look at that path down there. Yeah, mm. I like that about it. Yeah, yeah, it's very, and it can happen all at once as well. So it's this idea of kind of being ready for something but you don't know what it is and then being able to be spontaneous <laughs> when it does come. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, like, it's, you, you've got to have half a plan. You've got to be ambitious, I think. Yes. And you've got to love it. Very, very much so. And I think loving it is the one that gets you through more than anything. I think if you really, really love it, then, then you'll keep at it. Um, but there's people who love it who just aren't ambitious enough and they're like, I just, I'm not going to, yeah. you, know, uh, you know. Yeah, they're interesting. The, the, the particular mix of those things that different people need, I think, are very interesting. Mm, for sure. So then... When did you first kind of think, okay, well, you know, I, I wanted to direct a piece of theatre and what play was that? Look, I, I am slow to this day on the uptake in many, many ways. And it took me a very, very long time to realise that I wanted to actually direct myself. I thought for a long time that um, I would just sort of assistant direct quite a bit, that that's what I would do, that that's as far as it would ever go. And so when I actually, when I was in my third year at Whopper, Matthew Lutton, who was now the artistic director at the Malt House, he was at Whopper at the time. And he and I were very good friends and um, he wanted to direct something and ask if I would help him out on it. So I, so I sort of assistant directed this production of The Bald Prima Donna with Matt for the Perth Fringe Festival. Um, but really, I came out of drama school um, half-formed, desperate to be an actor into an industry that had no place for me, an actor like me at all. Um, and um, like, that's, like I worked a fair bit as an actor for quite a few years, but it was not until, um, it was not for a long time, long time, even after I'd been at Belvoir for a couple of years, that I um, sort of thought maybe I knew what, what a director should be and that I might do that myself as opposed to just kind of um, support other people to do it. Um, yeah, that took, a, that took a, a really long time. So between finishing drama school, it was, I think it was five years before I actually finally directed something. Interesting. After kind of just thinking it wasn't, that I couldn't. It was a little bit, you know, directing was also like 19th century botany or astronaut sort of. 
again, another thing that was beyond me <laughs> to do. <laughs> yes, it's funny how you've now um, done that twice where <laughs> you're like, that seems like it's just, you know, so far-fetched for me and then you did it. And then, oh, now that thing seems so far-fetched for me and then you do it. So I wonder what now seems so far-fetched to you that you're going to do. Maybe be Prime Minister? Or... No, no, thanks. I don't know. I don't know what, what's next. I mean, at the moment, I feel like I'm very busy. Like, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, things always sit there, you know, like they always sit in the back of your head. They always kind of, um, but you don't know which of the things in the back of your head are, are going to, could become realities and which are just the sort of, because I think sometimes having a sort of fantasy or a, um, uh, an impossible idea of something leads you um, places that you can't anticipate and that's when you encounter what's going to become the real thing that you do. Mm. So it's not like I had the idea of being a director as the only thing in the back of my head. There was a kind of, you know, like swarm of, um, you know, haunted, um, you know, late night, desperate, you know, urges that felt very similar in some ways to being um, a repressed, closeted Catholic schoolboy, <laughs> um, you know, and so I'm kind of quite comfortable with, comfortable with that hor horrible discomfort. And um, it always sort of sits there, the kind of buzzing kind of like, could that be something? Is that something? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't. Oh, all right. Now let's give it a go and see. Like that's always in the background of everything <laughs> yeah yeah well I mean sometimes I, I was literally just before we um, have been speaking I was on the phone to a friend of mine who um, was asking my advice on um, releasing a podcast and she was like oh Rachel I you know like th these are the ideas and she's a she's a producer as well so um she's very busy with production work and um that's going really well for her and she was um she's umming and ahhing about this podcast and I said I think maybe just sit on it for a bit just have a think about you know what it is that you want to do I think that kind of dwelling on an idea is important but then not it's it's this fine line of you know not dwelling on it too much so that you become inactive on the, the dreams that you have. But I think it's important to also kind of let it stew a little bit in your mind to, until, you know, the, the, insti the instinct is there to be like, okay, I think this is the right moment for me to um, take on this opportunity, you know? Yeah, my, I think that's really true. That My experience has been with kind of the big, the big sort of shifts where you kind of like... Um, you know, the next bridge that you cross or the next kind of like big sort of step, you know, in, in life or work, that often it's been preceded by several years of buzzing, uh, not buzzing around, of kind of like pondering a, an instinct or picking away at an instinct or, or kind of like thinking there's a gap over that way somewhere. There's a thing that's missing culturally or artistically or, or there's a thing that I kind of don't know what to do with. And then that sits there and if it survives long enough, my experience is that you get, keep getting drawn to things that are like it mm -hmm. and eventually just by hanging around that instinct or that idea, something comes along and you go, oh, there it is, that's, the, that's it. And it's never what you expect it to be. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it feels that area of um, obsession or 
or disconcertment or fascination or um, yearning or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that, that's definitely been my experience at all of the major steps. That's what it was like seeing Judas Kiss. That's what it was like going to drama school. That was not what it was like the first time I directed, but it was the second time I directed. Um, you know, you know, and you know, same with the job coming along at Belvoir in the first place. And um, you know, and when the first time I encountered Canning Cracking as a very, very raw draft, I already had created a sort of space where I was trying to find something that was sort of like that. And then here's Shakti with this play, and there it was. And you know, that was it was a long time before the play itself turned up. And I think if I tried to preempt that and acted on it, I would have missed the play when it, when it came in front of me and, you know, tried to push, push ahead and come up with something that wouldn't have worked. Mm. It's a hard thing as, as creatives, you know, I think we all, and in any career you're in, I guess, we always want it to happen right now. We always want the whatever it is to be happening in the immediate moment rather than being willing to wait um, or to kind of be willing for it to be a long marathon rather than a short race, I guess. Completely. But, but, and I think that's because holding open the need or the desire or the yearning is exhausting. It and, is. You know, nursing it, nursing, it in, nursing it along in the face of, you know, um, failure and, um, you know, um, feeling like no one else cares about that idea or that you, you're not actually up to it or... Um, you know, or that just it's never going to happen. Like, it's really hard to hold that idea open in the face of what comes at you. And But I think that's the biggest trick to, to being an artist, actually, is being able to hold that space open when there is apparently no hope of it ever um, being filled or realised in any way. Mm, yeah, and it's almost like the, it's so important to be consistently self-aware and be consistently checking in on yourself and the things that you desire and they do change all the time um it's it's not an easy job but I think it's a real for me personally I found it quite fulfilling to hold that mindset um I think it's it's kind of what keeps me going is just constantly checking in being like hey is this still what I want to do is this am I still open to that idea Am I still enjoying that? Those are like such important questions um, that we have to keep asking ourselves. Yeah. Is it useful? Is it needed? (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes the answer to that is, no, let it go. It's that tight. Like, don't, don't make that piece of art. Because like, sometimes (laughs) you then go ahead and make that piece of art and you regret it terribly. But then also sometimes the answer is, I don't think it's needed. Certainly no one else thinks it's needed. But actually, sorry, I'll get that, I'll rephrase that. Everyone else seems to suggest that's not needed, but I think it is, and I'm going to keep at it. And that's, I think, where the real interesting... Um, I think that's what the artistic bit of the arts is, the, the bit where something is changed or something new is made or realised or opened up or something. Mm, yeah. For sure, for sure. So in terms of um, working with Belvoir, it's this interesting uh, and like in the form that it currently is it's this very interesting mix of audience that you have attending you know the works there because it I I think it it does open theatre up to a really vast stretch of society you know you do have your kind of 
upper middle class, older people coming, but then you also have all of the kind of young people in the industry as well, which um, I was actually on a previous episode um, to this talking to another actor about Belvoir and we were saying, um, you know, we think that that is the case because of what the location of it you know in surrey hills you're in a really kind of interesting area where you are accessible by a vast array of society so um yeah look i, I love hearing that actually because that's what we set out to do um when i took over was to kind of become a, a place that could hold multiple that could be a home for multiple kind of um uh, you know, groups, people, um, uh, like it's, it's always been a bit of a rat bag theatre, but it has, I think, I think historically been a little bit homogenous, maybe. I'm not like, that's an instinct. Um, but, you know, something happened generationally, the, the gaps between generations seem bigger, but also the, um, the, the real, real thing that I wanted to do was to kind of open up the, breadth of stories that the company told and we we worked really hard to do that and it's it, we sort of stumbled on this model which meant that we could be I mean everything this is all in the past since you know the beginning of March this is another world now but mm. we stumbled on this model that meant that we could maintain that that beautiful old loyal core audience that had been you know that helped save the building and had kept the company going for so many years but that we'd found a way as well to put inside the programming pieces of work that weren't necessarily going to sell on subscription, but that we knew were going to bring in a whole new audience to the company. And so now we're in a position where we feel like we've got sort of three or four, maybe five audiences uh, like, you know, in, in and around the company. And that's what we wanted more than anything. That was what we worked for. And um, it, I, it's like, I love hearing that other people see it that way because it didn't seem possible at first. It seemed like maybe, the economics of running a theatre company meant that you couldn't kind of be quite that, um, you couldn't broaden yourself quite that much, but actually it works really well. It's it actually, it's great for the audiences, it's great for the vibrancy of the company, it's great for the artists and um, it's good for the city and it works financially. Mm. It's a bit riskier, but it, but it works. Yeah, and I mean, you know, theatre as a, a medium in a, a world that is forever changing it kind of has to, in ways, adapt because, you know, theatre, what, 200, 300 years ago is not what it is today and today's theatre industry is not what it's going to be like in maybe 50 to 100 years. So you do you do have to find those ways to adapt, you know, um, because the audiences are going to be different in 50 to 100 years time how and you know what what are the ways in which you are serving them um yeah is an interesting thing to think about well it's a particularly interesting thing right right now where just mm. before the coronavirus hit we had um for the first time ever we were pretty ready to program quite early like normally it's you know a mad scramble in late july early august to meet the deadline but we were kind of like we sort of had a program back in you know, early March. But I think that most of that program belongs to a different world now and a different kind of theatre in. I think that what people will be needing, how theatre gets made, 
um, when we're allowed to have audiences back in the theater, whenever the hell that is, is going to be very different. And so we, you know, we're kind of at the moment starting from scratch. And in some ways we're kind of almost starting, I think, the company from scratch in some ways. We're really, really going back to first principles because we just don't know what, um, you know, what form we'll take. And it's, that's a bit heartbreaking because we'd finally managed to get somewhere in the last 18 months. We'd worked very hard to kind of build a, a new sort of, you know, life for the company and, and it felt like it was working. And um, uh, we, won't, we don't want to abandon that achievement, but it's going to have to take such a radically different form that we're going to have to, in some ways, work out afresh how to do it, I think. Mm. I think, you know, the one, the one kind of... I don't know if you can call it a silver lining, um, silver lining. Uh, in this situation that we're currently in, um, it's that, you know, it, it hasn't just happened to one theatre company or it hasn't just happened to one production or one uh, film production. It is literally every single person in many different industries across the world that are in this situation together you know I think um, although it is a really shit situation in terms of you know as you say um, things were going well and now they're not going at all or you know going very little um, to you know be in it together is I guess one thing that I kind of keep trying to draw back to in terms of what's going on so yeah no, I think that's right. And like, if anything, the the sort of blows to the company, uh, we can absorb them. Can we look? You know, it's a pretty scary time for the company. Mm. We have we, we will we will be fine. But um, but I can only say that now. Like, if you'd asked me a week ago, I, w- I wouldn't have been able to say that for sure. I think JobKeeper has saved Belvoir as an organisation. Also, what has meant that that I'm able to kind of like just accept us being dropped in the shit is the fact that it doesn't mean anything for us alone to be dropped into trouble because the whole the whole of our profession is in that situation. And I think that the arts consist of artists, not organisations. Organisations are crucial. Infrastructure is crucial. But right now we're in a situation where Australian theatre consists of a bunch of organisations without artists, and I find that absurd. And so actually my um, attention so much is on how the hell we can um, keep artists working. And, um, you know, and that's a, that's a big, big question. Our, you know, our income fell off a cliff. We haven't got money, but we have to find a way because otherwise we shouldn't exist. Um, and certainly, you know, you would hope that a sensible government would, um, you know, would see that plainly, but... Um, I think that we're dealing with a government that, A, has a massive crisis on its hands and the arts is usually the bottom of the pile, you know, like the arts is always like, yeah, they'll be fine. But actually, the flip side is that I think there's probably quite a bit of, um, I think a lot of people in government hate the arts, actually, and I think a lot of people in government are very happy to see the arts um, uh, on the verge of collapse right now. And I don't think there is an appetite at all um, from our leaders. I find that um, not just depressing and enraging, I find it disenfranchising because I think that the arts are um, uh, like, uh, 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 you know, like they are uh, legitimate and and very old 
and very innate form of expression within a society and within a body politic. And I do think that um, this sort of what seems to be years of a policy of deliberate neglect, maybe even ruination, certainly um, disdain, is, um, I think, disenfranchising and kind of inhuman in many ways. Um, like, I, I find it profoundly worrying. There's something about it that bothers me just beyond the sense of, of you know, wanting to preserve the art form and the, and the, the profession that I love. It's the feeling that we're being ruled by people who would um, prefer to see their society diminished in, in such a kind of um, counter-instinctive, hateful way. Mm. And that's been really, really bothering me a lot because it's become yeah. very stark in the last few weeks. And so I think on the one hand, the crisis is coronavirus, but I think on the other hand, the crisis actually is that we are finally meeting our foes face to face on their terms and they don't all they have to do is not give a fuck and we're gone they don't even need to bother you know what i mean um it's like um it's a profoundly unsettling i think um ripping off of the mask in many ways yeah i i I would agree with all of those things about the current government um and i guess one thing that you know i've kind of been pondering on myself is that i i don't think that you can have a working and happy society without the arts i think creativity and artistic expression is part of being a human and people need it in order to be happy in their day to day whether you are a part of the industry or you you know, you enjoy the arts in terms of watching TV or going to the theatre or listening to the radio or listening to music. That That's all the creative arts. So I say, like, if they... It's if a they, deep, deep human instinct. And you can't, you, like, you can't, you can't legislate it away. You can't neglect it, like, policy neglected into oblivion because it's not going to go away. You have to work with it. Mm. And that's, like, I think, like, you know, the, the big effort that the arts have made is to try and say that we're, you know, we're an industry, we, you know, a legitimate part of the economy, we do more than, you know, all these other bits of the economy. I don't think the government cares about that. I think when it comes to the arts, they go, oh, suddenly the economy doesn't matter because actually Mm. the problem is we just don't fucking like you. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. You're loudmouthed, you're annoying, you give us the shits and we don't like you. We never understood you at school when we were in English class. We hated the drama kids, so we want you all to fuck off. (laughs) Like, I think that that's what we're dealing with. I don't think that the economic argument makes a damn of difference to them because no. they just don't like us. Yeah. And I find that profoundly anti-democratic. Mm. Like, well, we're the people. They're the leaders, actually. Exactly. I so, think... Yeah, sorry. You've, you've trod on my nerve now. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> no, I just... I, I, I agree. And I think, you know, I... Worst case scenario, they do take away the arts. I just think let's watch and see what happens to society because I just don't think that society will function with without an artistic sector and I don't think that society won't have an upheaval and an uproar because people are wondering what this void is that they're looking to fill without the arts. I just, you know, and I, I, I don't want it to come to that. I don't want them to take, I, you know, I don't want them to take our, our industry as a functioning industry 
but it, if it is going to happen, I think we just we just watch and see what happens because I just I can't imagine a society in Australia or in any other country without a creative industry. You know, I just I think it would fall apart. Yeah, I mean, it's never like there's never been a healthy society that hasn't had you know its artists um, as an integral part of its. Mm. Um, functioning so you know I think it I think it's sort of like the mushrooms in my back garden at the moment no matter do they spring back so like I think they can be as aggressive or as neglectful or as disdainful as they like it's not like we're not going away it's just that simple so work with us it, you know yeah yeah mm. and look you know it could it could be that we're just dealing with the fact that the government's got its hands full but you cannot I can't help um the consistent pattern of just um um, complete dismissal that I find um, appalling. So, yeah. I think, yeah, the next few months is definitely going to be interesting. Although one thing that has been fantastic is, you know, the way in which um, the individuals within our industry are so resilient and so willing to put up a fight and to fight for their passion and to adapt. We're very, we're a very adaptable industry. Um which has been great to see, you know, and I think it challenges you as a person as well. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, look, I think that maybe the arts, I think we do need to get better at arguing for ourselves and telling our own story. I read somewhere some, the other day, someone saying that the mining industry is better at telling its story than the arts industry is, which is ironic <laughs> given that that's our profession. But I think there is some truth to that. I, I do think that um, we need to learn to get better at some aspects of it. But, um, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be an interesting time. Like that, I don't know. Like a lot will, a lot of irreversible damage will happen in the next three to six to twelve to eighteen months. Um, and once we come out the other side and things can open back up fully in the way that they need to for for theatre certainly to function, then um, I think we'll have to kind of do some um, very deep thinking. And you know, look that could be a beautiful thing. Like, I think there's a lot of huge problems, structural problems with the way that, that arts and, that, and Australian theatre works at the moment, and maybe it's an opportunity to use this time to, um, you know, as, as good crises do, as an opportunity to fix some things or um, rebuild some things or, yeah. Mm, for sure. Um, in t- uh, I want to go back to Belvoir for a sec. Um, and, um, the, so the initiative with the, the downstairs, um, theatre, which is 25A, that's, that's a really interesting kind of initiative within your theatre. And I think that comes back to the idea of the, um, trying to cater to, um, a wider audience. Um, so how, how did that kind of come about in opening up that area of the theatre and and how do you kind of go about um, obviously being as open as possible to kind of new works and whatnot um, in that sector? Um, I, I was, uh, like, I was, an indie, I was an indie artist before I was at Belvoir and even when I was at Belvoir and I started directing, I started directing as an indie artist and, you know, like my first shows as an actor and director were all in indie spaces and... Um, uh, you know, so it was partly that. It's partly that I know from experience that that you cannot learn your craft unless there is some theatre 
that is made readily available to do that, um, you know, uh, if, that's, if that's your art form. But it was also that um, when I was an indie artist, the first piece of theatre I directed was sort of thrust upon me. Um, it was a play I didn't really want to direct and didn't really understand, and it showed, I think. Okay. Um, and it certainly showed in how much money I lost producing the damn thing. And so I was like, well, I did all that and I still don't know if I can direct or not. So I, so I decided that I would learn whether or not I could direct by picking a play that I really wanted to do. I adapted it myself. I found this gawky play. I got everybody together. We did the whole thing on a few hundred bucks. And I just performed it in the rehearsal room at Belvoir, which I had the freedom to do. I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And we just did it for five nights in that rehearsal room. And I learned what I needed to learn. And was, and was able to say, yeah, I can direct. And I'd never forgotten the freedom of that experience. And in some ways I've never, like nothing I've ever made since then has had the same freedom as that. And it was to do with the fact that there was no money on the line. And it was to do with the fact that um, it was self-curated in some way. And so when, when I took over the company, I knew that there was a need for an indie space and for a space for artists to learn and practice and that our downstairs theatre was a beautiful theatre. I had worked in there as an indie artist. Um, like so many, so, so many great, great artists had started down there from Judy Davis way back in the day to, you know, Kate Mulvaney more recently. And so I thought, let's just open it up, but let's not go back to the old B-sharp model because that model was open, I think, to... Um, I think it was, I was going to say corruption. That's not quite fair. But it, it created a, an economy of scale that meant that producers were at the top paying themselves double points to produce four or five shows at once, while down the bottom of that system were the actors and the stage management, who were the ones doing all the hours for the, you know, weeks and months on one point. And I thought that was obscene. And I, was, I didn't want to rebuild that system. So I kind of thought about when I did Summer Folk in the rehearsal room and what that system was and that part of the thing about it was that I had to fund it myself from a credit card, which meant there was a limit on how much money could be spent. And I thought, well, let's not, let's not create any economy of scale. Let's give the theatre for nothing, but demand that, that the companies spend nothing so that there's no need to make money. You can, you can make your money back on a 25-day show after selling 60 tickets or something. Like, it's not much. So no one's going to go broke down there. No one's going to lose money practising. That was where the idea came from, sort of flat pack version of, and a kind of like profoundly kind of like anti, like anti-capitalist, anti-economy version of, um, you know, of learning your craft. Um, and it's been great. Like Don Mercer's really like been running. I, I'm very aloof from it. I don't really have anything at all to do with the programming of it. It, it really is kind of like, um, you know, Don works with a group of artists to program it. Um, but it's been wonderful. And, um, we, we've loved the artists that it's brought in. We've loved some of the show, like some of the shows. I'm being really honest. There've been some terrible shows. We we make bad work upstairs too. It's okay. Um, so you know, like it's been terrific. I'm so pleased that we did it. Um, yeah, you need spaces like that. You can't leave a theatre empty. No. Wrong. <laughs> well, it's just interesting. I feel like within you know uh, Sydney, the theatres that we do have. Um, there's definitely kind of what I feel is like a divide from the, you know, the, the small time independent theatres, um, you know, which you do need to rent the space, but it's quite cheap and they're, they're putting on the kind of independent shows. And then you 
have, uh, I guess, professional productions happening at STC and the ensemble and all that sort of thing kind of up here. And so I think that, you know, 25A really does, it sits in a really interesting sector because it is part of Belfort, which is, you know, a, a widely known um, and successful theatre in Sydney. Um, but it has that the element of the independent theatre, which is happening at all the other independent theatres. I think, it, you know, it's almost kind of like a, a stepping stone um, for people, which is great. It's kind of like being like, hey, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna help you out here and um, give you this opportunity, which is so great, you know. We just love having like artists around the theatre. Do you know what I mean? We just love yeah. it. I love going in there and you know watching a twenty five age show come out and seeing a young audience of artists watching each other's work. It, the, my memory of turning up in Sydney and finding my place was was you know in the independent sector and you 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 get to belong by watching as much as being in it when i first turned up in in sydney all i wanted was to be in a b sharp show downstairs at belva street and i auditioned for lee lewis and she didn't cast me i never no, got to be no. in a b sharp show <laughs> but you know and i remember that that's how you joined your profession was by you know kind of drinking at the bar with people who'd just been in a show that you'd just seen and you become peers that way and I love that that happens at Belvoir Street. It always has. And I think that's the thing that, you know, Belvoir, it is this funny, you know, slightly rundown, shitty little old warehouse on a Surrey Hill side street. And that's never going to change. And um, it, it's always been a company, you know, it was, it was built, you know, that theatre was built by artists. It was conceived of by artists. It was saved by artists and audiences. It, you know, like it's always been a kind of... Um, uh, I don't know, like a, a refuge or something. And I'm not pretending that everyone gets a go. That's not possible. Like there are only seven slots. We got 200 applications for seven slots. If we could, you know, do 40 slots, we would, but there's not that many months in the year. So I'm, it's not like I'm saying it's kind of an all-inclusive utopia. Yeah. I know people get left out, but mm. um, I do love, I love the energy that the artists bring to the building. And I love that the sense of ownership that they have over the whole thing. Um, is a great, great pleasure. Mm, for sure. Well, well, and it's basically creating space for the up-and-comers that are going to be making the industry in 40, 50 years' time to have a kind of step into the industry to meet the people that there is going to be the industry with them in that time as well, you know. So I think that's important. There was a moment... If- in the last in the last couple of years of B Sharp, when Annette Madden was running it, and we we kind of put a lot of attention towards what you know towards that um, that version of the downstairs indie program. And there was one year where where I think it was about two thousand and ten or eleven or something, something like twelve um, directors made their main stage debuts around the country, and I think about nine of them had grown up at B Sharp. And of that 11, I think something like seven or eight of them went on to become artistic directors or associate directors at, um, at major companies around the country. And so it was clear that there was a need for something like that. Mm. Um, you know, that it was really a kind of seedbed for people who, you know, are going to be the ones who keep it all alive when the time comes. Mm, for sure. Um Quickly before we wrap up, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, directing 
um, and the shows that you direct. I think um, one thing that I noticed when I was kind of reading through um, all the different shows you've done is there is a very, like, it's a vast array of different shows, you know, they're not kind of all, you know, there's, there's Shakespeare and <laughs> there's everything in the mix, which I think is very interesting. Um, now, I, I want to know what what do you look for in a script when you're looking to take it on? Is there, have you kind of developed a um, a system of knowing what shows you do and don't want to take on um, and what kind of interests you? Or Okay, look, um, <laughs> that's a very good question. <laughs> I, look, the first thing is I love eclecticism and I, 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 like, I love the fact that I've directed both Angels in America and, uh, you know, and um, Willem and Ayu and the Seven Paminui on a, on a basketball court in Milikapri. I love that. I love being able to work that broadly. Um, and I miss in some ways, since I took over Belvoir, at one end of that broadness. And Canning Cracking supplied some of that. But so eclecticism is a big part of it. And I love being inside and outside of, of the system. I think that's um, full of life and energy. I don't get to do it as much as I'd like anymore. But the other part of it actually is that I'm, I'm really not good at picking my own projects. And the thing I learned when I became an artistic director is that I'm a fucking terrible artistic director of my own work. And I'm not good at curating my own choices. Um, like Angels in America was not my idea. That was Simon Stone's idea, saying Eamon should direct Angels in America. Um, Glass Menagerie was Luke Mullins saying, well, you know, we've just done... We, was, we were still performing at Angels in America at the time. And he said, what about this other great queer play? And, um, you know, like, uh, so some of the stuff that I loved the most and that I thought was the, amongst the pieces of work that I think were actually good that I've done were not my choices, actually. Um, and when I first took over, I, I went with my heart on a lot of things and didn't really think twice about whether or not I should do them, whether or not they needed to be done. I, I, I don't regret most things, but there's one or two shows I'm like, I shouldn't have done that. That was stupid. So. Part of the answer is I'm not good at picking my own material, um, what to direct. I'm kind of often better when I'm responding to things and when other people are, are sort of pose a challenge to me or set some sort of task for me. Um, but in the last couple of years, I have, um, uh, like certainly um, when I read that script of Canny and Cracking, that very, very early draft, I knew that I knew how to not just do it, but develop it and do it justice in a really deep way. And that was sort of a real reminder. I think like that kind of got, I got my bearings back a bit, I think with Canning and Cracking. Um, it was excruciatingly difficult thing to pull off, but I, I loved working on it and I felt like I understood a bit again, what kind of director I might be. Um, and working on Tommy Murphy's play last year on Packer and Sons, which was a, um, I don't know if it's, maybe it was a controversial piece or it just, you know, it didn't, it was not everyone's cup of tea at all, the, the material, but, um, but I, I loved working on it. And I thought that actually it was a really brilliant piece of writing and a great critique actually of masculinity. And, um, and I adored the, the thickness of the detail in the writing, which was something that I had loved when I worked on Menagerie and, um, and to some extent on Angels in America. And it was lovely being back on that kind of writing. I hadn't been on that kind of writing for a little while. And um, 
So that was great. But look, I think the short answer is um, I'm relearning a little bit. Some of it as an artistic director is that you have certain obligations towards the programming and the company. Some of it is that there's artists that you trust and you want to work with and you listen carefully to what they are, um, you know, what they're engaged with. Um, and so that was a, certainly that was a big part of working on Canning Cracking and working with Tommy on Packer and Sons. Um, but also the other thing is it changes. Things that I loved, like when I first did um, Midsummers and when I first did As You Like It, I, I loved, loved, loved working on those two shows a great, great deal. But I see them very much as early work and I don't know if I would do them at all now or if I did do them now, I wouldn't do them that way. And like, so that when I did Twelfth Night, I realised that I was kind of simultaneously trying to go backwards and forwards at the same time, which is why the, I think the production was troubled. Um, so there's things that I used to love most, like those kind of big, exuberant Shakespearean works that... Um, that I'm a little nervous of tackling again now. But I'm doing some, well, I was going to be doing Summer Folk for the second time in my life, which is a play I love, which is a big rambunctious play. I do like big plays. I do like large groups. I hate group dynamics in real life, but I love them in theatre. <laughs> um, That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, but it changes. It just changes is the thing. I don't, I wouldn't do, I would never do Midsummer Night's Dream now. Much mm. as I loved working on it, much as I love that production that we all made together, I would never do it now, I don't think. Well, it just it just kind of proves the point that we were saying before about the adaptability of yourself as a creative and being open to things forever changing kind of thing and just uh, having the... Having you you the, change as well. Yeah, like, yeah, we definitely do. You do. Like life changes you and... Um, things that you clung to that you always wanted to do, you just sort of, you go, well, that didn't happen and I've got to let go of it because it doesn't, I don't see a need to do it anymore. I always thought if I ever got to run a company that all I would do was Chekhov because Chekhov was my great, great love. But I haven't <laughs> done one since I took over the company. It's, um yeah, just the, again, having the awareness to um, discover what what it is in that moment that is interesting to you and is needed um, by the greater people, I guess. Um, and then being willing to explore that and then being open to that changing, um, in a short amount of time or a long amount of time and, uh, exploring the new thing that it's changed to, you know, that's kind of... I think you do, there's certain kind. this is the same with actors, I reckon. There's certain kinds of writing that you get and you know, and you just have a natural sort of like feel for certain kinds of writing. Um, and then there's other kinds of writing that no matter how much work you do, how much you prepare, how rigorous you are in the room, you just kind of can't crack that particular kind of writing. And then there's similarly processes. I think as a director, I, as an actor, I don't know, but as a director, there's certain processes you know. Like I know that I like, um, I know that I like big plays because actually I like working with space and I like working with dynamics of bodies in space, not in a choreographic way. I love the playfulness that you can get from working in that way. And so I find myself getting led by um, those two things more than anything. It, a question of whether or not I know what sort of process for the work and a question of whether or not I know um, 
how that writing works. I know how the line writing works. And I don't mean the dramaturgy of the whole thing. That's always a puzzle that you have to solve. Like every play has its own dramaturgical puzzle. But I mean how the line, like how the text itself functions mm. from one actor to another. And that I find is often my way into things. And um, I mean, I think if, if you've watched my work closely, it would be pretty clear the stuff that I get and the stuff that I don't. Mm, yeah. yeah. But it's the same with actors. There's actors who are very good at certain kinds of writing. They're brilliant with one kind of writing. They try a different kind of writing and they're dreadful. It's the same with directing. Yeah, and I mean, the interesting thing as an actor is it's almost, it's this weird kind of thing that you have to be aware of in that, you know, um, work can sometimes be few and far between. So do I say no to something in which I don't think I am 100% getting um, and let let go of that work or do I just take it on and kind of try? It's, yeah, it's, I don't know what the right answer is to that. Yeah, well, sometimes you don't know if you're any good at it either. Like sometimes you don't discover that you're good at something until you do it or that you're bad at something until opening night and all the critics and all of your friends are there going, this is shit. Like, you know, <laughs> yes, an experience we've all had. <laughs> yeah. You can only try, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, when Angels in America came up, I, I wasn't sure if I was the right kind of director for it. And in some ways you also get, sometimes the task demands it of you. Sometimes you just have to kind of like give over and you get good at it because you just have to, because you cannot fail the play. Um, yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I found that in podcasting as well. Um, you know, s- starting out as just kind of doing it by myself and being like, okay, I guess, I guess I have to get good at having conversations with people because that's what's required of me. <laughs> and you just kind of do your best in the situation that presents itself and you learn from it and then on to the next, you know, it's not creating something that is going to be perfect um, initially or maybe ever perfect, but just kind of approaching it in the best way that you can as a person is... I guess, the most fulfilling thing. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to get multiple shots at something, to try and, you know, at least learn what not to waste everyone's time on. Yeah. (laughs) Time, you know? Yeah. True. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone's like, Rachel, stop podcasting. You're wasting our time. (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh dear. Well, Eamon, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. I really appreciate you giving me your time. I know that people can go and have, well, when um, I guess people can still go and look at the Belvoir website and the past productions and whatnot and keep up to date with where you guys are going to be at in the future in terms of. Yes, I mean, hopefully by the time this comes out, we will have announced. Yes, something. fingers crossed. So look out for those things everyone listening. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Eamon, and I will talk to you soon. Pleasure.